We have a confession. Culper Partners is actually an AI. (laughs) (laughs) Terrific. Terrific. So so, uh, Nate and David are actually uh, sipping pina coladas uh, uh, somewhere in the South Pacific? That's exactly right. And we program these avatars to interact with you in an extremely realistic way. I think we've definitely passed the Turing test. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Welcome to episode 245 of the Cyber Law Podcast. Back uh, for 2019, uh, I am brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, we've been gone almost a month, uh, and so it's uh, a pleasure to be back and to have as many stories as we have. So we've, we're going to skip the interview and uh, just extend our news roundup uh, to uh, to talk about uh, all the stories, or at least the most important stories of the last several weeks. Uh, I'm going to be joined by Nate Jones, co-founder of Culper Partners, and formerly with both the Justice Department. Uh, and the National Security Council's Counterterrorism Office, and by David Chris, uh, who uh, uh, with Nate was a co-founder of Culper Partners and was the Assistant Attorney General in charge of the National Security Division at Justice. Uh, uh, Nate, welcome. Thank you. And David, too. Thank you very much, Stuart. And I'm Stuart Baker, uh, formerly with NSA and DHS and the host of today's program. Uh, I should uh, tell you at the outset, uh, we're really pleased uh, that uh, the Cyber Law Podcast is now available on Spotify. Uh, so if you're uh, looking to listen to us on Spotify, you can do that now. Uh, all right. Silicon Valley, uh, courtesy of the New York Times, is complaining that uh, – Export controls are uh, on artificial intelligence are going to uh, wreck the AI industry in various ways. Uh, uh, Nate? This all stems from a November uh, advance notice of proposed rulemaking that came out of the Commerce Department in which they listed a, a pretty um, long and broad set of categories of technology that they are considering for export restrictions on national security grounds. And, and as you've noted, um, they've received some some critiques from from industry and from the technology industry in particular. And you know, obviously, that's no surprise. These people have to serve their shareholders and and represent their businesses' interests. And this uh, type of restriction poses some some potential threat to uh, certain markets that they currently operate in. And so I my 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 sense on this is first this is actually part of the CFIUS reform uh, uh, review that uh, um, kind of to everyone's astonishment uh, achieved bipartisan uh, consensus uh, a, a, around a pretty innovative approach uh, uh, in the bill called FIRMA. And part of uh, uh, FIRMA uh, was to say, uh, uh, we also ought to address um, uh, technology exports uh, using export controls, not just using controls on what uh, uh, companies can be invested in. Uh, uh, And uh, because export control law hadn't been updated in 20 years, uh, there was a decision that uh, there had to be a massive update uh, that uh, was going to be driven in part by DOD and part by commerce to find the new technologies, the foundational and emerging technologies that had to be controlled aggressively in order to prevent uh, uh, China from eating our lunch militarily. Uh, And this list is sort of a quick 
uh, and dirty list of technologies that DOD mainly uh, thinks uh, need to be controlled in some fashion. Uh, so this is all part of a relatively large effort to change the legal framework that the U.S. has been using for the last uh, 60 years uh, from uh, the presumption that uh, export controls were not very not needed since the Cold War ended to something that says we really need to go on to a much more aggressive uh, adversarial footing in dealing with China. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, I think if you talk to folks in industry, even some of them would admit, uh, at least privately, that it is a sensible question to ask. You don't want to wake up um, 20 years from now and realize that you've made a, a big mistake by not doing something on this front. But I think, you know, the million dollar question is what to do, right? And I think, I think the, the, if you read between the lines in, in the advance notice, I think it's pretty clear that the administration doesn't really know what it wants to do quite yet. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Uh, uh, there's um, uh, an assumption that something has to be done, but nobody knows exactly what it uh, is. And artificial intelligence is kind of the uh, uh, the classic case because artificial intelligence could be anything from simple tools that uh, uh, identify likely parking places to uh, and and run on your phone to uh, uh, very sophisticated uh, machine learning uh, algorithms that um, the people who design and use them don't even understand uh, how they work uh, and figuring out uh, the point at which you're just going to say, oh, this is commodity now, this is a commodity artificial intelligence uh, is uh, a, a pretty tricky line to draw. Yeah, it is. And I think, you know, from whether you're in the government's position or, or in the industries, I think there are at least sort of three things that you, you need to think about and, and frankly worry about. First is a, a process issue, which is even in the best of times, these, these issues of this magnitude and this complexity are hard for an interagency process to, to grapple with. And when you're relying on the Trump interagency process, it's like <laughs> hitting cleanup for the Milwaukee Brewers when you're not given a bat, right? Uh, <laughs> and there, there are tactical questions, as, as you were alluding to, about sort of, you know, even within these broad categories, where are the risks coming from? How do you mitigate them? And how do you actually eff effectuate any policies that you decide to pursue in this sort of nebulous and somewhat hard to control realm of, of technology. And and finally, you have the big strategic question, you know, weighing over their heads, which is, you know, many believe that uh, AI and machine learning and, and some of the other things listed here are sort of the next big wave of, of technological advancements. And whoever wins this race is going to take a giant leap forward. And you really don't want to do anything that's going to screw that up. And so um, the stakes are pretty high for them, and, and they're facing some pretty, uh, in my view, daunting challenges in, in trying to, to come out in a good place here. Yeah, it's going to be very difficult to uh, uh, to figure out how to uh, run this process, how to uh, uh, administer regs of this kind, and the the enormous lists that have uh, been produced uh, without any real sense of exactly how it will be uh, implemented uh, is just an example of how hard that's going to be. Uh, this is an advanced notice of proposed rulemaking, which means there'll be at least one, probably at least two 
further rounds of comments. So uh, anybody who has an idea about how to do this or an industry to protect uh, from a bad implementation uh, needs to get in and start filing comments. While we were gone, uh, uh, AP10, there were some AP10 indictments. Uh, uh, AP10 uh, is a, uh, um, a, a Chinese uh, um, uh, attack uh, group, uh, and uh, uh, the indictment goes after just two members of the group, but uh, it describes some exploits and some targets that are uh, pretty troubling. Uh, um, uh, David, uh, you used to your your uh, uh, national security division was responsible for bringing a lot of these indictments and has brought a lot uh, since you left. Uh, what's new about this one? Well, it's it's actually more of the same, I think. In in main vein, they they have definitely stepped up their actions at DOJ against China. There's an official China initiative that Attorney General Sessions announced before his departure. John Demers, who is currently running the National Security Division, has been very vocal, uh, both in congressional testimony and in public statements about the threat posed by China. The FBI, including the FBI director, I think, uh, has said pretty explicitly now that uh, they are trying to replace us as the world's superpower. So they are sounding the alarm summoning all hands on deck to deal with China. The debate here is really part of the larger debate about exactly what the proper role of law enforcement is in counterintelligence. And it's similar to a debate we've had, and in some ways we continue to have, about the role of law enforcement in counterterrorism. There are legitimate points of view on both sides of that, but um, that's what this has sparked this increased law enforcement activity against China. So Jack Goldsmith uh, has a piece in Lawfare saying this is just a failure. Uh, the idea of indicting our way out of a um, cyber uh, espionage problem uh, is uh, is played out. It's not going to work. Um, and. Uh, he and uh, Robert Williams muster some pretty good arguments about uh, the fact that uh, we've seen a modest decrease uh, uh, for a, a moment in time under the late Obama administration and then a revival of commercial espionage by the Chinese uh, um, a, despite much more frequent uh, use of indictments. Do you think that's a fair criticism? Not totally, no. Um, I mean, Jack is definitely the smartest and one of the most vocal critics of the use of law enforcement in this counterintelligence context. I mean, everybody agrees that you prosecute spies for espionage, but the, the larger question is about the, the broader role of it in the overall program. And I, I think that the point that I disagree most with about in Jack's uh, views here is that it seems to me he sets the bar too high and then accuses law enforcement of failing to meet that bar. That is, of course, the indictment strategy, if that's what you want to call it, has not produced perfect results, nor has anything else that we have done. Right. And so on that basis, you might just say that everything, sanctions and diplomatic pressure and covert action and anything else we may or may not have done have all failed. But that doesn't, to me at least, make the case that there isn't a role for law enforcement uh, as part of a larger mosaic or constellation of U.S. government activities. So if you just sort of lower your expectations a little, 
then I think it doesn't seem uh, to be as much of a failure. And I think there are some things in some cases that uh, a law enforcement strategy can contribute to the overall strategy, but they have to see it as such in the government. It's not clear to me that, that they really do have an overall strategy so much as just a series of individual actors pursuing opportunities where they see them. Um, and that, I think, is part of the larger problem. There's not really any evidence of an overarching strategy here. That would be the interagency process in the Trump administration, right? Uh, everybody doing what they think uh, uh, they can and want to do. Right. And that, to me, is the larger problem here. Law enforcement can be an, a small but non-trivial part of an overall strategy, but only if you actually have an overall strategy and put it into effect. So uh, this this is not sufficient. Obviously, these indictments are not sufficient. They looked briefly as though they were having a pretty significant effect, and that uh, seems to have been played out. Uh, um, and we'd like to solve this problem or at least dramatically reduce the uh, incentives to carry out uh, cyber espionage, especially for commercial purposes. Uh, um, what is it we should be doing that we haven't been doing? We've certainly been putting plenty of sanctions on. We certainly have been indicting plenty of people. I don't think Jack has a lot to suggest uh, uh, and to to a degree his counsel is usually, well, suck it up. It happens to other people too, uh, which I must say I, I find equally unsatisfying uh, uh, compared to the uh, uh, naming and shaming and failing uh, that we're doing with uh, indictments. Yeah, you know, the, the, the distinction here, I think, is between the economic espionage and other forms of espionage, because you know, when the Chinese hacked the Office of Personnel Management and stole all the, uh, you know, security clearance forms for you and me and Nate and others, um, you know, many former members of the IC actually sort of tipped their hat and uh, didn't exactly applaud it, but did uh, give it some respect. That's old fashioned espionage. Both sides do it. Both sides try to stop it. But we sort of all agree that in some meta sense, it's inbound. We're going to prosecute people that we can catch them. But, you know, state to state, high level, that's part of the game. We think and we have tried to get the Chinese to agree that stealing economic information for economic purposes, as opposed to intelligence purposes, is sort of of a different type. We've failed, it seems, so far to do that uh, successfully. And I don't have a magic bullet. I don't think Jack does. I don't think anyone really does. I, I, I think this is one where you just have to keep pressing in a strategic way using the typical combination of carrots and sticks that are available to try to motivate other states to do things and see things the way you want them to to do them and see them. Um, we haven't had a lot of success. There was a moment where maybe it looked like it was going to get better. It hasn't. But if we make it a priority and we keep pressing, you know, maybe things will change over time. Um, but that's the way I see it. I, I don't see a, a simple magic bullet that's available here getting other states to care about it as much as we do, or, or at least close to as much. I think you know, this is one more area in which we're seeing that American influence isn't quite enough to get us over the hump and deter certain activity. And we frankly haven't been getting the kind of support from international partners on, on countering some of this stuff that we probably need to get to be more effective. Yeah, you know, look, we got the G20 to 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 sign yeah. on to uh, a ban. We got the 
Germans to sign on to a deal with uh, China that was meant to uh, stop commercial cyber espionage. They they have done some things, uh, yeah. and we haven't asked them to do a lot more. I agree with you. We ought to ask them for more. I am at work on a list of 25 truly shocking things that we could do in response to cyber attacks, uh, things that really crossed lines for us, uh, uh, have been calling it the Eithberg Project because uh, we'll be thinking the unthinkable. And when you want to think the unthinkable, an iceberg comes in handy. Uh, and uh, I think the the answer there is to start looking for tools that are much more kinetic, but not necessarily fatal. Uh, that uh, have deniability, that have reversibility, that have some of the advantages of cyber attacks, but that play to our strengths in kinetic and power projection uh, uh, capabilities uh, in ways we haven't uh, in the past. So um, at some point, I'll come out with. A, a paper on that, uh, and uh, uh, you can look forward to uh, at least an, a, a set of amusing and occasionally pretty serious uh, options that we should be uh, deploying beyond indictments. You know, Stuart, when it comes to thinking the unthinkable, there is literally no one like you. So I, for one, am definitely looking forward to your list. And I mean, it is certainly true that if you if you sort of really prioritize this and you decided that this was you know, in your top five or 10 uh, foreign policy initiatives. And I'm not sure, frankly, that it is um, even for you. But, you know, you could do a lot of stuff. I mean, hey, you could just cut off diplomatic relations with the Chinese if you really want to tell them that you're cranky about it. Um, so the question, though, is, you know, <laughs> will doing something like that have collateral consequences that you don't like? So I do look forward to your unthinkable list. Um, it, will, it will certainly be informative and educational uh, at a minimum. And maybe it'll get you a job in the NSC. Oh, God. What's what's the second <laughs> prize? Uh, 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 two jobs at the NSC? Uh, all right. Uh, hacks of the month. Very quickly, uh, we saw uh, newspaper production interrupted uh, and uh, looked like maybe it was going to be states. And then it turns out it was probably ransomware. Merkel uh, gets all of her uh, uh, personal phone data and uh, the phone data of a lot of other German politicians doxed and everybody says, oh, this is too serious to have been done by kids. And then it turns out it's a kid, right? Uh, um, and then uh, the North Koreans break into a bunch of South Korean agency files to find refugees and uh, uh, asylum uh, seekers from North Korea who have relocated to South Korea and who are obviously going to be the subject of harassment by North Koreans in the future. Uh, as I read it, a lot of pretty standard stuff, nothing too surprising there. Right? Uh, you guys see it differently? No, it looks like just more and more and more and more of the same, whether it's uh, state sponsored by the Russians or some other government, whether it is some 400 pound guy living in his parents' basement or or even someone not that heavy. Uh, there's just more and more of this kind of stuff going on. Um, I think, though, you know, as more and more institutions become victim of this, um, and I'm thinking in particular that the U.S. judicial and legislative branches are are potentially vulnerable. You know, we're going to see more and more ugly emails that were written in haste or written stupidly, and you know, it's sort of seems to me likely to lead to a further undermining of trust in our institutions, maybe deservedly, but I think in any event it will happen. And so we're going to have to learn to adjust to this new world as a, as a society, both by increasing our cybersecurity and then maybe also by 
sort of trying to see these kinds of disclosures in, in a broader context. Being more thoughtful about what we write down. <laughs> yes. It, in theory, that works. Uh, when you're thinking about it, it works. But uh, yeah. it's very tempting not to think about it. Okay. Um, so I, I want to ask you guys about the uh, Hal Martin case. Uh, uh, because again, it's a national security uh, uh, case. Uh, he's um, uh, the guy who's accused of hoarding a whole bunch of uh, exploits at home. Um, he was busted, uh, and there was some thought that he might have been the source of some of the materials that were actually released online. Uh, that's looking more complicated, isn't it? Yeah, there was a recent decision by the uh, district court that denied two and granted one of his motions, um, in particular his motion to suppress statements that he made when the FBI came uh, in a large group with SWAT operators to his house, uh, handcuffed him, put him on the ground and so forth and so on. The, the whole mosaic of the case is a little bit hard to figure out right now, but there's clearly a lot of activity going on on Twitter and on in chat rooms and bulletin boards. The core of the judicial ruling that just came out was basically that although Martin, when he was arrested at his, well, when he was, um, when the agents came to his house, handcuffed him, put him on his couch, set off a flashbang grenade and, and started searching through the house pursuant to a search warrant, they told him that he was not under arrest and he was free to leave. Uh, but the judge basically said, you know, you have all these agents uh, standing around you with their guns pointed at you and you've been handcuffed and put on the ground and then you're seated on a couch while the agents run through your house. You don't really feel free to leave. And so he should have been Mirandized. He wasn't. So his statements were suppressed. So I that, that, that struck me as a perfectly reasonable interpretation of the situation. Uh, uh, yeah. he, he couldn't talk to his uh, longtime domestic partner. Uh, uh, it was an ex extraordinarily coercive environment. Uh, and my question for you is uh, obviously the Justice Department has something to say about how the FBI conducts these raids. Did they just decide, let's let the FBI do it, and if he confesses, uh, we'll, we'll fight over whether it was coercive or not? Or do you think the FBI went beyond what the Justice Department wanted them to do when they conducted this interview? You know, I, I frankly doubt that the Justice Department lawyers uh, got into dictating to the agents whether and to what extent they would uh, Mirandize him in this. I mean, the, the Bureau has its dialogue, which is extremely detailed manual of how it proceeds. And some of that inevitably gets left to the discretion of the agents on the ground. So it's certainly possible that the prosecutors discussed with the agents an arrest scenario. But you know, given uh, and the and the use of Miranda in particular, but I think it's also possible that the agents just sort of thought they were following their standard procedure. I have to say, though, reading the judge's opinion, I do think, uh, like you, that um, you know the judge's decision is not not wrong, uh, given everything that happened. When you have all these SWAT operators there with their body armor and you know so forth. And they set off flashbang grenades to do a little overpressure check in case there's a booby trap or something. You know, it it's not just a walk in the park um, for the recipient of that kind of thing. So I don't know why this why this happened. And I I'm not at all sure that the prosecutors made an informed decision to roll the dice on getting him to talk. It's certainly possible. 
but it might also be that they just didn't get into that kind of micromanagement and planning ahead of time. So I've got a theory, and the theory is that these are counterintelligence FBI agents, and they do a moderate number of arrests and almost no trials so that they don't pay the price if they screw up uh, in this way usually. Uh, but in this case, uh, they are prosecuting them and they are they did screw up uh, and they'll they will pay a price yeah uh, so let me let me let me uh, uh, jump first uh, very quickly there's a nice article from MIT review saying uh, uh, that quantum uh, technology is going to be a um, uh, an arms race issue between the United States and China and they talk about some applications of quantum technology kind of remarkably no real discussion of quantum computing instead it's all about uh, the uh, the uses of entangled photons uh, uh, for intelligence purposes for encryption, which I think is a you know uh, high, oh, highly overhyped uh, technology in terms of its ability to change the course of warfare, uh, and a kind of more interesting idea that uh, if you can t entangle a couple of photons and send uh, uh, one of them out uh, to find a, an enemy plane that is using stealth technology, uh, you can tell when photons that are entangled were sent out and come back, uh, and uh, uh, that allows you to identify enemy planes in ways that you can't if you're just looking at a bunch of incoming signals. So that sounded kind of interesting. I'm not sure how transformative that is, but it's a pretty big deal if you're relying on stealth. Let's let's talk quickly about uh, litigation involving uh, uh, privacy. Uh, uh, Los Angeles has sued the weather company for collecting location data, which, of course, we all know they collect location data, but apparently they've been collecting very detailed stuff. And Los Angeles, almost certainly at the instances of some plaintiff's law, uh, uh, law firm, uh, has decided that uh, that's a violation of California's um, commercial um, uh, reasonableness uh, uh, rule. Uh, anything going on there that uh, we ought to focus on? I mean, I guess two, two things struck me about it. The first is, you know, through litigation, maybe through legislation, social activism and other ways, we are going to be having an sort of a more focused national conversation about exactly what consent means, because there is in the weather app a, a general consent and statement and warning that, you know, we get information, we share it with partners. But how much information, how frequently, how granular, with which partners, for what purposes, all of that is obviously not included. And it, it may be that um, we're going to have to refine what we expect by way of notice and uh, consent in these kinds of cases. Yeah, but this um, is a classic case of uh, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. They can only squeeze so much onto the screen of your phone before you just say, I, how many of these screens do I have to scroll through before I click I accept? Um, uh, so the idea that they should have talked more about what you were consenting to uh, just raises the question of if you talk more, aren't you likely to be confusing people and uh, beating them into submission by uh, uh, page after page of uh, uh, a privacy policy? Yeah, I think that that's right. And that'll be part of the, the conversation that I think this lawsuit you know, represents, which is exactly, you know, how much is just right as between too little and too much um, in the way this is 
this is disclosed. And I think the other aspect of this is just the, you know, the tremendous economic value of big data aggregation of location information, including micro weather information and the uses that can be made of it. Um, so this is likely to continue. You know, there's a, I think there's big money to be made here if you do it at scale. And the question is, you know, what what do consumers need to be told and what do they have to agree to in order to allow that to happen? Um, this thing is about twenty five hundred dollars per violation. So if this lawsuit has legs, you know, because this thing is is happening at scale, it, it could become quite expensive for IBM, who owns the the Weather Channel. Well, and this is what the, the, the this is. California unfair practices law, business practices law. So it's very vague. And the courts have been so far kind of reluctant to just say, oh, yeah, uh, uh, everybody gets $2,500 for things that are not obviously scams uh, and frauds. Uh, um, but we are, you're right. We're going to see, see lots of litigation over this. Have you followed the litigation over the Illinois biometrics uh, act uh, uh, that's also i i sort of view that as a revolt of the judges they're just not willing to impose liability so far at least yeah in the google in one federal court case uh court basically found no standing um in some people who use google photos and whose facial geometry was captured and stored by google but there was nothing else there was no commercial use of that you know in the sense of selling it to other parties uh nor was there a data breach nor was there really anything other than the the mere collection of it and a federal court said that is not enough it's true that you know state legislative findings that there's an injury in fact are relevant to standing but based on the record the court saw in the Illinois legislature, it didn't find that there was enough. It sort of invited the legislature to make some additional findings, and that might change the thing, the balance going forward. But that was the result there. Well, and standing it, standing is just it, – it's a federal uh, doctrine. Uh, it says, well, we, the federal courts, aren't going to uh, address this because we don't think there's enough at stake. It feels like uh, people are asking us for an advisory opinion. But the uh, the state courts don't have that out. They're going to have to address this. Uh, uh, and I guess the Six Flags case is where they're going to address it. Yeah, because in that case, the plaintiff's son had his fingerprint collected biometric information collected when he went to the amusement park. There was no breach. Again, I don't think there was any use. And this, the, the statutory question seems to be whether he was really, quote unquote, aggrieved and therefore entitled to sue under the Illinois Biometric Protection Act. And we will, I guess, find out what the state courts think when that ruling comes out. Yeah, I, I, I have to say, I, all of these standing and was he really aggrieved points strike me as not getting to the heart of the problem, which is that the courts just don't see what the problem is with uh, uh, a collection of this uh, data. There's no harm identified. Uh, but it surely is open to states to say – uh, we're not looking for harm. We think that the harm is implicit, the risk is real, and we're just going to tell people, if you collect this data, you will pay and pay and pay. Uh, right. And, and you, don't, you don't need to have standing for that. And I guess that's why these cases probably are going to end up in state court because uh, uh, the, the feds may not, uh, uh, may not find standing, but the um, state courts don't have to. Yeah. 
Okay. Uh, very quickly, uh, I, I like this story. I just can't resist this story. Um, there's a kind of generative adversary network uh, form of AI in which you uh, you, you run – exercises back and forth and each side tries to see if they can improve on what the other uh, side did and it's basically just two pieces of um, uh, two algorithms uh, battling each other to see whether they've done a good job of of, of, of uh, making the decisions that had to be made and, and this was a decision about uh, whether to uh, uh, about how to translate, maps and into uh, satellite photographs and satellite photographs into maps. And as the generative network algorithms moved back and forth, they started doing a remarkably good job of identifying uh, um, uh, map the data from uh, uh, the uh, satellite photographs. And it turned out the reason they were doing that is they were hiding all the relevant satellite data uh, in the maps uh, so that they could recoup it later. Uh, so it's really a form of steganography. Um, now, you can say what they were doing, what the, what the a artificial intelligence had done was found a way to cheat. Uh, or you can just say that uh, the people who were running the algorithm, because they didn't understand how the results were being achieved, uh, did not realize that the results were not being achieved in the way that they thought. Uh, um, but it does, certainly shows we're going to have algorithms that seem to do magical things. Uh, and if we don't find ways to understand what they're actually doing to achieve those results, we're going to have Shocking miscarriages and surprises in the course of using it, uh, but it was a great was a great story uh, uh, about uh, uh, with with the implication that maybe the artificial intelligence was just gaming us. Um, yeah, I don't think that happened, but uh, uh, we won't know when it does. We have a confession: Culture Partners is actually an AI. <laughs> Fake. <laughs> terrific, terrific. So, so uh, Nate and David are actually uh, sipping pina coladas uh, uh, somewhere in the South Pacific. That's exactly right. And we programmed these avatars to interact with you in an extremely realistic way. I think we've definitely passed the Turing test. Absolutely, absolutely. All right. Uh, um, uh, some actual law got actually passed by. Uh, an actual Congress, so it's kind of amazing uh, at a time when everybody says nothing works in uh, uh, Washington. The Secure Tech Act got passed uh, uh, and it did, you know, some uh, small but useful things uh, uh, with respect to the Department of Homeland Security. Nate? Yeah, it did, I guess, three primary things. It directed the Secretary of DHS to develop a process for addressing security vulnerabilities that are discovered within DHS's network. Establishes a bug bounty pilot program, and um, I think the dark horse in this legislation is the establishment of a process to identify and address supply chain risks. Um, now, setting up a process is nothing new, and and may have happened anyway. But I think you're you're con you know similar to I guess the the risks from AI and the other technologies we talked about earlier in the commerce. Um, advance notice, we are hearing some grumblings that there are concerns about supply chain risks um, within the executive branch and how they ultimately deal with them through this process, I think will be very interesting. Yeah. I, so uh, on the whole, especially, I guess, in cybersecurity, we 
do continue to see the vestiges of bipartisan concern. Uh, and uh, we got a little bit of legislation. Um, whether that will help on the shutdowns, not clear, since about 45% of the DHS uh, cybersecurity workforce has been furloughed as not essential. I, I kind of am puzzled by that. Um, I Actually, here's a, here's, a, here's a question for you, David. Uh, you probably dealt with uh, uh, shutdowns. It is my theory that what we're going to see in what is almost certainly going to be a very prolonged uh, uh, shutdown, we're going to see a lot of strain on the question of who's essential as um, you know, there are plenty of people who are not essential if you're going to be shut down for a weekend and who are essential if you're going to be shut down for a month. And I wouldn't be surprised to see uh, the president calling more and more people back to work as essential as a way of responding to the stories about how terrible the shutdown is and why the president should back off his demands. Instead, I think he's going to make it less terrible. And I don't think there's really a lot of legal ability on the part of Congress to, to tinker with that. You know, I'm not an expert on the legal background, but certainly I think you're right as a political matter. Um, if the shutdown continues, there's going to be pressure across a whole variety of government agencies and functions to reclassify. And that'll have interesting effects on morale, because I think employees, I've been through several of these as a career employee, as a political appointee as well. You know, on the one hand, you you don't want to have to go and work for free. And it's, you know, kind of demoralizing. On the other hand, um, everybody likes to be thought of as essential. And so there can be some interesting effects on workplace morale. I, um, but I, I think you are probably right. You know, with respect to getting tax refunds back and then with respect to airport security and with respect to even civil litigation at some point, you can certainly imagine a wide variety of retail level reclassifications that allow more and more individual functions to occur, whether that's coming from the president or whether that's coming from the cabinet secretaries or below and bubbling up uh, could be either way. But I think you're right. And one of the great ironies here, of course, is that the first place they've um, suggested that they're going to call more people back to work is the IRS. Um, so only only to issue the refunds, <laughs> <laughs> not to collect taxes. <laughs> exactly. No, it, it, in in the hands of a different president, this could be a really sharp partisan knife to to say, yeah, the government is shut down, but it turns out the only programs that are shut down are, are the ones that the, the Democrats care about. Uh, I, I don't think this president is likely to be able to pull that off, but you never know. All right. Uh, last uh, uh, item. I just want to make a recommendation uh, to uh, the, uh, uh, the our listeners of an article that I just thought was fascinating and deeply weird in The Verge about a very long article about uh, Amazon Marketplace, which actually is a lot bigger. You don't notice it when you're on Amazon, but you're you're much more likely to be buying from somebody other than Amazon when you uh, buy stuff. Uh, uh, and uh, the competition to be the third-party supplier who gets the coveted buy um, button is extreme and full of dirty tricks because if you're number two and there's one guy ahead of you, if you can find a way to get Amazon to say, oh, that's not a product we want to be selling, uh, you become number one and you suddenly get a 
boatload of money. And so uh, my favorite is when uh, uh, a bunch of scooters started catching fire. Uh, Amazon got very serious about product safety. And so um, uh, people who were number two, three, four, five in line to sell their products would buy the product that was uh, number one, set it on fire, and then send a video of the thing on fire to, uh, to to Amazon saying, I bought this and it burned up, uh, which immediately bumped them off in and in the usual charming Silicon Valley way. Uh, uh, there was no way to find a human being to talk to. You had to fit their algorithm and their algorithm was you had to confess that you had done it and that you had changed something. So people are now there. There are like whole law firms devoted to telling people how to confess to Amazon uh, and get their number one rating back by changing something, anything about the way they um, uh, sold the uh, their product. Uh, I, it's a it's a fascinating dive into a world I didn't even know existed. Yeah, it was a fascinating article. I particularly enjoyed the thin socks. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, We'll leave that for our uh, uh, listeners to try to figure out uh, what uh, that is. But as I said, it's in The Verge. It's a great article. Uh, all right. Thanks, Nate. Thanks, David, for, for joining us. Uh, this was terrific. Uh, this has been Episode 245 of the Cyber uh, Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, please send us guest interviewee uh, uh, suggestions, uh, and we'll send you our highly coveted Cyber Law Podcast mug. Uh, uh, send those to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I will from time to time uh, uh, flag the uh, articles that I think we'll cover uh, uh, in the podcast, uh, but this week I didn't, so I apologize. Uh, please rate the show. We got a couple of uh, new ratings in. Uh, uh, go rate us on Spotify, especially because we just got started there uh, because – well, we're just disorganized. I'm going to have a fun interview coming up with Jeff Jonas, who's the founder and CEO of Sensing, uh, uh, who's really the master of agglomerating data into uh, undeniable identities and a host of uh, applications from uh, uh, card counting rings in Las Vegas and terrorists in the Middle East uh, uh, and uh, uh, people who just want to make sure that uh, uh, voting rolls are uh, uh, accurate and up to date. Uh, show credits, uh, Lori Paul and Christy Jorge are our producers. Doug Pickett's our audio engineer. Michael Beaver's our intern. Uh, I'm Stuart Baker, your host. Please join us next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.